0: I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903 five, eight, six, six, five, two, zero. If you would like to support the ministry here at fellowship Bible church, we would greatly appreciate that as well to give one time or on a regular basis. You can text give to nine Oh three, five, eight, six, six, five, two, zero. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Have you ever started a major project that you knew would come at a considerable cost? Maybe it was paying for and getting an education. Maybe it was starting a building project or buying a house. Perhaps you took on the task of having your house remodeled. Right, Randy? (laughs) These kind of projects require you to determine the cost, make a commitment to get it done, and then work diligently until it's accomplished. Over the last couple of weeks, Ron discussed what a disciple is. Today we will consider what is required to be a disciple. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Today's sermon is titled, Counting the Cost of Discipleship. Before we begin, I need to give you a brief overview of the text that leads up to this point. Luke wrote back in chapter 9, verse 31, that Jesus had set his direction toward Jerusalem. He had began the journey to go there to give himself up to be crucified. At the beginning of chapter 14, Luke tells us that Jesus was dining with some of the religious leaders. Now, this might seem odd to us that Jesus would accept an invitation to eat with them since they were out to get him, right? But it was customary for religious leaders to invite rabbis into their homes to share a meal on the Sabbath after the worship service in the synagogue. And Jesus seized on this opportunity to dine with them and proceeded to give them a lesson in righteousness. They had set Jesus up by having a man there with dropsy to see if he would violate their laws by healing him on the Sabbath. Dropsy is a condition where the individual would retain large amounts of fluid in their body. It would be damaging to the organs and to the rest of the body. It would be painful and could even cause death. One reason we know that they were likely attempting to trap Jesus is because the text tells us that there were lawyers present. But knowing their hearts, Jesus outsmarted them at every turn. He cornered them by turning to the lawyers and asking them if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. If the lawyers answered no, they would appear insensitive toward this man that had this terrible condition... And if they answered yes, they would be violating their own laws, and so they remained silent. Jesus healed the man with dropsy. He sent him away, and then he told them two parables. One to those who were invited, which is the parable of the wedding feast, and another to the man who invited him, which is the parable of the great banquet. In the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus Address the prideful acts of the religious leaders to elevate themselves rather than humble themselves. In Jewish culture, at this time, important guests would sit at the left hand of the host, and the less important guests would sit at the right hand of the host, therefore establishing status within the group. Jesus taught them that unlike the rewards systems of man God focuses on motives rather than actions he showed them that in the kingdom of God humility brings praise and sacrifice brings glory in contrast pride is exposed and it brings public humiliation in Jesus' Second parable, the parable of the great banquet, he gave a rebuke of the religious leaders for rejecting him. By rejecting him, they were rejecting God. In the parable, Jesus mentioned three guests who were invited to the great banquet, but they did not attend because they had things that they considered were more important to do. One said he had bought a field and he had to go and see. Another said he bought five yoke of oxen and had to go and examine them. And the third one said he had been, just been married and he could not leave his wife. Each had given what he thought to be a legitimate reason for not going to the banquet. But this angered the master of the house. And he instructed his servant to go out and invite others who would come jesus was teaching the religious leaders that as descendants of abraham they were offered a seat at god's table in his kingdom but for selfish reasons they rejected it and they lost their seat again he pointed out to these religious leaders that they were motivated by wicked selfish hearts focused inward on themselves and therefore, they rejected God when he was presented to them in the person of Jesus Christ. Today's text comes on the heels of these two parables. Understanding them helps us to gain insight into the passage that we are looking at today. Selfish motives, like those of the Pharisees, will be contrasted with what Jesus demands of his disciples. As we examine today's passage, we are first reminded that Jesus is fulfilling his mission to get to Jerusalem. Luke tells us that Jesus turns to the crowds and explains to them what it takes to be his disciple. He does this by using negative qualifiers, sometimes to understand something it helps us to understand what it is not. Three times in this passage, Jesus tells the crowd what disqualifies someone from being his disciple. In verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, Whoever does not cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, Any one of you who does not do these things cannot be my disciple. And then Jesus gives them two parables to help them understand these teachings and then he follows up with one more parable so let's take a look at the text beginning in verse 25 now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple In verse 25, we read that Jesus turned and spoke to the crowd. Usually, this type of statement is followed by a rebuke, a clarification, or a correction. But here, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for following him. Instead, he challenges their motives for doing so. Notice that not everyone who places themselves near Jesus is actually His disciple, His follower, His true follower. To truly follow Christ, we must have a real relationship with Him. And this this brings me to my first point, point number one. True discipleship means maintaining an authentic relationship with Christ. Notice in verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone... Comes to me and does not, he cannot be my disciple. This text shows that people can come to Jesus and still not be his disciple. In other words, they can place themselves near Jesus geographically, they can have their own Bible, maybe even stamped with their name on it, they can attend church, they can associate with true believers and still not be a true disciple. Unfortunately, we see this all the time. Being a disciple of Christ is not about drawing near to Jesus geographically. It's about drawing near to Him spiritually. It's about having an authentic relationship with Him. And this relationship is to be one of submission to God and things of God. It is a relationship where one is constantly allowing God to conform them to the image of Christ. This is done through prayer, the study of God's Word, fellowshipping with and being accountable to other true believers and subjecting themselves to the teaching of qualified teachers. It is a relationship that changes us and conforms us to the image of Christ. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, this is a requirement. God wants to come into our hearts and change us, renovate us, tear us down, build us back up, and make us more like Him. Most of you who know me know that I've been a contractor for years. In the last several years, my focus has been on Remodeling homes. And to remodel someone's home, the contractor first has to tear some things up. And you've heard the phrase, you have to break some eggs to make a cake, right? Well, a contractor breaks a lot of eggs. Isn't that right, Randy? I re- I'm picking on Randy here because I remodeled Randy's house. Great job, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's it's kind of getting off topic, but... Um, Understand that the customer's home is their place of comfort. It is their place of refuge. It's where they live. And each customer has their routine. Usually they get up early in the mornings, they drink their coffee, their tea, their juice, their smoothie, whatever it might be, and they have their alone time. They move on their own pace, getting ready for work, or whatever it might be that they're going to be doing that day. They usually come home at the end of the day and they want to relax. They like having their homes to themselves. They go to great lengths to protect them. They go to great lengths to guard their homes. They put locks on their doors. They put fancy alarm systems on them. And when a contractor comes to remodel someone's house, he disrupts that system. The process is invasive. The customer's world Is turned upside down. The contractor comes in and he tears things up. He moves furniture around. He tears out walls, ceilings, floors, and rips up foundations. He makes dust fly everywhere. And this goes on for days, weeks, even months, depending on how big the project is. It gets really messy. The contractor makes a mess, and then he cleans it up. And then he makes another mess, and he cleans that one up. But after he's done, the home is better. The home looks nicer. It's more useful. It's more functional. And guess what? The customer loves it. They love their new home. They're happier because of the renovation. And they often say things like, I wish I would have done this sooner. That's what it's like to be a disciple. God wants to come into the disciples' heart and renovate them. He wants to make changes in His disciples that will conform them to His design to bear His image. He wants to tear down walls and ceilings. He wants to tear up floors and foundations. Dust flies. It gets messy. It can be downright painful. But God builds you back up to be more beautiful than you ever could have imagined. God wants us to have an authentic relationship with Him, one in which He can exact change in us. And when God renovates areas of disciples' lives, the disciples are then more useful for advancing His kingdom purposes. And guess what? It fills you with joy. It gives you rest. It gives you peace. It gives you strength. I'm reminded of Nehemiah 8.10 where he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Of course, it takes having an authentic relationship with Christ to accomplish this. God can only change you as much as you allow Him to change you. You can only be conformed to the image of Christ in areas where you allow God in. You have to unlock the door. You have to invite Him into your life if you want Him to change you. Do you have an authentic relationship with Jesus? Are you allowing Him into your life? Are you allowing Him to renovate you and conform you to the image of His Son? Are you truly following Christ or are you just following along with the crowd? Are you placing yourself in close to Christ geographically or are you drawing near to Him spiritually? A true disciple maintains an authentic relationship with Christ. Point number two. True discipleship means giving your relationship with Christ Priority over all other relationships and earthly things. Look with me again at the text in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this saying seems kind of hard, doesn't it? It seems to contradict the fourth commandment to honor our fathers and mothers. It seems to contradict Jesus' other commands to love others. Jesus even commands us to love our enemies. So is he literally saying that we must hate our fathers and hate our mothers and our spouses and our children and our brothers and our sisters and our own lives? Well, not exactly. What he's saying here is that we must love him so much that in comparison, all other love looks like hate. Jesus was using hyperbole here to emphasize a point, but it's important to note that This does not mean that this teaching was not radical. It was, and it is. still is. Jesus is saying that no other relationship that we can have on this earth, even relationships with our own family members, including our spouse and our children, can come before our relationship with him. He must take priority over all other relationships we have if we are to truly be his disciple. You know, I was doing my sermon prep for this, and I thought about my wife Colleen, and I asked her for permission to, to use her in this illustration. And mothers, I think that you can identify with her. Um, but I could just hear her say, hey, my babies come first. Or maybe my grandbabies come first. Maybe you can identify with that. Colleen loves her grandbabies. This, would be a huge, this is a huge sacrifice to put Christ first. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you want to truly love your babies, if you want to truly love your spouse, if you want to truly love your father, your mother, your brother, and your sister, and even your own life, then you must love him more. And it's only when you do this that you will learn how to truly love them. Of course, applying this truth can be challenging. This means that we may alienate ourselves from our families and our friends. If you follow Christ, you may be cut off from them. You may be disowned by your family. The Testimonies are numerous from those who have been disowned by their families for following Christ. In fact, one of our missionaries that we support, Peter Fredheim, has a testimony about being separated from his family as a result of following Christ. This can be painful. Jesus does not call us to an easy life. It's a blessed life, but it's not always easy. Following Christ may mean refusing to support a family member because they are living immorally. It may mean that you have to refuse to endorse a relationship because it does not honor God. It may mean that you have to confront destructive behavior at the risk of never being able to speak to that person again. Doing these things may make it seem as though you are loving God over family when the truth is you are loving both. Following Christ is not always easy, but it's sin that's ugly, not discipleship. Not only must Jesus take priority over all relationships, but He must take priority over all earthly things. Look with me at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Bless you. Following Christ will cost you everything. Now, there are some that will take this verse out of context, and it's important for us to understand that this verse should be viewed in biblical context. We must consider it in light of other scriptures, like, for example, 1 Timothy 5.8, where Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus is not saying that we should not have any possessions at all. Money can be a good thing. We can use it to provide for ourselves and others. Homes are good things. We can use them to care for our families. In them, we can have Bible studies. Cars are good things. They get you to church where you can worship God corporately with other believers. And they can take you to other places of worship as well. They get you to your place of work so you can make money to provide for your family and others and support the church. Earthly possessions are not a problem until they become the ruling thing, until they become a God thing. We must not allow earthly things to become the primary focus. We should also avoid making the mistake of thinking that Jesus is simply overstating To make a point so no sacrifice at all is needed. That's not true either. Following Christ truly costs you everything. Many have given their lives to follow Christ. People are still being martyred for the faith today. To strike the right balance here requires one to have the right attitude about relationships and material things. If you truly love Jesus, it will show in the way you treat others. If you truly love Jesus, it will show in the way you value things. How do you view your relationships with others? How do you view view your relationship with God? How do you view the valuing of your things? Does Christ take priority in these areas of your life? Or do earthly possessions and relationships take first priority? Are these things your main focus in life? Or is your relationship with Christ the main focus? To make a commitment like this requires us to first count the cost. Then make a commitment. Then follow through. Jesus gives two parables to illustrate these points in verses 28 through 32. In the first one, in verses 28 through 30, Jesus gives a parable about a man who builds a tower but fails to count the cost, and then he's mocked for not being able to finish it. Look with me at verses 28 through 30. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. During this time, people would build watchtowers to overlook cities so they could keep watch. Or they would build watchtowers to overlook properties and fields and crops so they could protect them until the time of harvest. This would be an expensive undertaking. And it would have been necessary to count the cost before starting such a project. To fail to do this could result in not being able to finish And of course it would draw criticism. Being a disciple is like this. There is a real cost to following Christ. And when we become his disciple, we must first count the cost. We must not underestimate the cost of discipleship lest we are unable to keep our commitment and draw ridicule to ourselves. We must view our relationships and our possessions from God's perspective. And we must hold on to these things Loosely enough so that it's God who has the grip on them and not us. The second parable that Jesus gives here is the one of the king who weighs the risk of going to war with another king who is greater. Look with me in verses 31 through 32. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Here the king must make an assessment. Go to war or seek peace? Jesus is saying... Here, that those who want to be his disciples must make a similar assessment a person can go their own way which results in taking a stand against God or they can take a much wiser approach and seek peace with God on his terms which is extended through his grace which one of these represents you are you standing in opposition to God By the way, that's a war that you will not win. Or have you signed a peace treaty with God on His terms and received His gift of grace? Have you given your life up and over to King Jesus? Are you following Him? That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian. The two terms are synonymous with one another. If you have not given your life up and over to him, I pray that you would do that today. Place your faith and trust in him. Turn from your sins and follow him and be saved. And when you become his disciple, you will not only be transformed, but you will be continually conformed to the image of Christ. You'll be useful to God for fulfilling his kingdom purposes. And this brings me to my third and final point. Point number three. True discipleship means being useful to God for accomplishing His eternal purposes. Look with me at verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. In Jesus' area, in the time of his earthly ministry, the salt that they had was likely from the Dead Sea. It would have been full of minerals. Salt has many uses. Processed in one way, it would be useful as a seasoning for food, Processed in another way, it would have been useful to provide minerals for soil. And processed yet in another way, it would have been useful to slow down the decomposition process of manure, to preserve it, and make it last longer so they could keep it well until they needed it. Jesus explains that if salt loses its usefulness, then it only makes sense to throw it away. He's saying that it's the same with useless followers. The kingdom of God needs useless disciples like a household needs to stock up on a useless substance. Furthermore, those who do not possess the qualities listed in this passage are not truly disciples at all. When my two sons were growing up, they loved to play baseball. You baseball fans will appreciate this. We spent several years going to practice, to baseball camps, to games, and tournaments. And there was a word that players would use to describe someone who was a really good baseball player. They would say that he's salty. This meant that he was a hard-working player out on that field. That he made a real effort to be good at what he was doing. You could count on him to make plays and drive runners home when he came up to bat. My question for you today is, are you salty for God? Have you counted the cost of discipleship, committed yourself to following Christ, and do you serve God diligently to be the salt of the earth that he has called you to be? Do you go out into the fields which are ripe? For harvest to be useful to God for fulfilling his, his kingdom work? Can God count on you to make plays and help him drive runners home through the narrow gate? True disciples maintain an authentic relationship with Christ. True disciples give their relationships priority, their relationship with Christ priority over all other relationships and all earthly things. There's a real cost to becoming a disciple of Christ that must be understood in the beginning. And true disciples make themselves useful to God for accomplishing His eternal objectives. Do these things describe you? Are you a true disciple of Christ? If not, what are you waiting for? Jesus desires for you to follow Him and be saved. If you have not done that, I pray that you will do that today. Let's pray together.